irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. Welcome to All Things Therapy. I'm your host, Lisa Tahir. I'm a licensed clinical social worker practicing as an intuitive psychotherapist. I'd love for you to reach out to me. There's a couple of ways you can do that. Through my LA Talk Radio show page, All Things Therapy, there's a link to my website, NOLA Therapy. It's the abbreviation for New Orleans Los Angeles Therapy. You're able to schedule sessions with me online through email or text. Give me a call if you'd like, if that's easiest, at at my New Orleans or Los Angeles office locations. I do phone, Skype, and FaceTime sessions worldwide as well. And I really appreciate all of you who have been listening to my show over the last two years. And if you haven't Please jump on iTunes or Google Play and subscribe to this show and rate it. It helps a lot if you take that extra step to do that. And if you like what you've been hearing, I invite you to support my work through the crowdfunding campaign that I have with Patreon. They're an awesome platform where podcasters, authors, and artists can can receive financial support to do what we love to do. That direct link is... Patreon, P A T R E O N dot com forward slash all things therapy. And that's that's one word. My guest today is really special. Her and I attended Academy of the Sacred Heart High School 29 years ago, where we both graduated mm-hmm. from. And since then, her life has gone in some really interesting directions. I'm really honored to be speaking in a few moments with Callie Jones. She started as a Peace Corps volunteer in Madagascar, where she partnered with local government to improve the health of mothers and children living in poverty. She became a U.S. Foreign Service officer in 2002 and has served in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam, Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and in Brasilia, Brazil. She worked in the Department of State Operations Center, where she served under Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, providing daily briefings, among other things. Callie has been a lecturer on constitutional law in the political science department at Howard University in Washington, D.C., and most recently, Callie has been the diplomat in residence at Tulane University here in New Orleans, where she provides guidance to students and professionals in the community. Callie has completed her tenure as diplomat in residence at Tulane University and in June will be moving on to her next post in Botswana where she will be deputy chief of mission. And we're going to talk to her about what all of this means and what it means to be a U.S. diplomat and how that's affected her identity. Welcome, Callie. Thank you, Lisa. I really appreciate you asking me to do this. Thank you for agreeing amidst your move and with so much going on in your life. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So I'm wondering, where would you like to start us today? 
Well, I think um, you started talking about my Peace Corps service, and that really was the one thing that at least um, helped the trajectory of my career. There are things earlier on in my life that impacted the way I view the world, but in terms of my career and where it started and why I ended up as a diplomat, I think my time as a Peace Corps volunteer is pretty important. So we can certainly talk about that a little bit. I'd love to. I know I've heard another interview that you did where you spoke about um, just really defining yourself, getting to know yourself during that time in Madagascar and what you learned about humanity um, and people. So wherever you want to begin with that time in your life, I'd be curious to know more. So I joined the Peace Corps right after law school. I went to Tulane, and it was an unusual decision, obviously, for a lawyer to make. But at the time, I was interested in doing something that had a social impact, and my wishes to stay home kind of took a turn just because I wanted somewhat of a break and to explore the world a bit. So when I joined the Peace Corps, I went to Madagascar as a health volunteer and worked in a clinic there. And while I was working with different groups of of mothers and the community as well as the government, kind bringing all of those groups together to make an impact, I changed my view of my role and how I wanted to shape, you know, I guess, different elements of social work because I realized that I could be the person who brings you know, the different elements that can solve a problem together, for example, the government, health workers, USAID, as well as Peace Corps, to solve the problems the mothers were addressing and working with local community. And it's somewhat what I do today as a diplomat, is I go look, but I'm looking at it, obviously, from an American perspective. But you know, I realized as a Peace Corps volunteer, bringing all of those things together, I could do continue to do as a diplomat, and that's what I do currently when I work in other countries like Haiti or Brazil. So I'm hearing themes of, besides getting your law degree at Tulane, you also mm-hmm. concurrently got a master's in public health and tropical medicine. So it I sounds did. like you brought that passion to your work in the Peace Corps and as a diplomat. I did, and it was... Although I ended up doing health work, um, I no longer necessarily focus on health work. I focus on economic issues as a, as a diplomat. I think okay. I was more interested in, if we could say this, I was more interested in about helping people wherever they wanted the help. Mm-hmm. And I would say that's true. Like when I served, I'll bring up Haiti, I was there um, right after the earthquake, and it was a moving experience, mostly because Haitians and Haitian Americans and Americans who happened to be living there were obviously in great need, and we used the United States government and all the different components of the American government alongside the Haitian government to do um, what was really right for Americans. And one of the things, like when I focus on like where I'm needed and how I'm needed, I think about the earthquake and I think about, you know, sitting and interviewing all of these people who were trying to leave Haiti after the earthquake and, you know, helping them with their humanitarian parole, um, 
interview, I guess there are interviews between us just to help them get out of dangerous weeds. But I, I reflect on the fact that, you know, I was not there as a, as a person doing health work. But Lisa, when I was there, one of the most impressionable moments I had happened to be a health component because we set up, we, the U.S. government, set up this kind of mobile hospital to help people. And at the time, there was a young American boy there who hadn't had, obviously, all the pharmacies were closed post-earthquake. And he was at the American embassy. His mother was Haitian. He there, So there was, a, I guess, a language barrier. And this young man was suffering um, from his epilepsy. And what it took from me was really communicating in Haitian Creole and working with the medical staff and getting this young man his medicines so that he could continue to survive and then uh, evacuating him medically to the United States. So this is the kind of thing we do as diplomats to help American citizens in dangerous ways. But even though that's health work, it's more about the helping component. Yes. It's always been kind of my focus. And that has a lot to do with just my upbringing as well. I think that's really cool because when I thought about, I didn't know what you do as a foreign service officer or U.S. diplomat and learning more that it really is about helping people based on countries that have a high level of need at the time. And certainly Haiti did after the earthquake. So a little bit about diplomacy, because I think it's important. Having been a diplomat in residence, my primary job was to educate people about what we do as foreign service officers and diplomats in general. And although our roles change uh, depending on the country we're in and our focus, our obviously our number one priority is helping American citizens in a foreign country. That's why mm -hmm. the diplomatic corps was started. But we also are there to promote American businesses. Um, we talk a lot about trade relationships these days. And so as a person who focuses on economics, it's one of the, my primary things that I uh, worked on in Brasilia. We also do cultural exchanges and demonstrate what America, you know, things that we do in the United States and we have you know, jazz bands go to different countries to show what our different cultures are like. We have scholarships so that other students can come to the United States. So it's really about promoting the best of America abroad and being the spokesperson for America anywhere you happen to be. I think that's the, the outline of what diplomacy is and just promoting um, U.S. interest so that we have a stable country at home. And and hearing what you said about the way you, you grew up, I'm wondering if you knew when you were younger that you would become a U.S. Foreign Service officer and diplomat and how that happened. I know your mom was an OBGYN at Charity Hospital. Mm -hmm. My father was a physician there as well, probably around the same time. Can you talk to us about some of that? Well, this is what's interesting about um me becoming a diplomat. My story is unusual. So since most people can't see me, I am African-American and you probably because I'm a woman. And I am also from the South. And those three things combined make me an unusual um, representative. There are not many of us. And that's one of the things that we have tried to to focus on in the Department of State is changing the diversity outlook in all of its ways, not just having, you know, people from the Northeast, but people from the South and women and people of color. And so when I was growing up, I certainly had never considered 
becoming a U.S. diplomat, and I was unaware of even the way in which you become a foreign service officer. Mm-hmm. And I use those two words interchangeably. But when I, I will, I'll kind of talk about how I found out and going back to why it was a good fit. I learned about the Foreign Service actually while I was in Peace Corps because Again, you know, I was abroad and I realized I wanted to live internationally and stay in, you know, in, I guess, foreign affairs, international relations. And I met people at the embassy in Antananarivo, Madagascar, and I started to learn more about the process that there's an exam you have to take and it's quite competitive and how to study for it and it's offered three times a year. So I learned about that quite late in life. I didn't understand that road because I was not exposed to, you know, I have to say growing up as an African-American, you had finite choices that were important. You could be a doctor, a lawyer, or teacher. Those are the things that we kind of Mm -hmm. focused on. And I know that sounds odd, but one thing that I think growing up in New Orleans that really impacted me is also seeing the world as an outsider, because that's certainly how I felt growing up in New Orleans, always yeah. it was, it was as an outsider. Yeah. Um, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so I, okay. Cause you know, I didn't, you know, I, I don't want to ramble. So you just ask me questions, but this is the thing. So when I was growing up in New Orleans, as I mentioned, I, I mean, I'm African American and I went to a school where I was, one of two and one of few. And so I was constantly seeing myself as someone different and an outsider. And those memories for me and the way that I, you know, wanted to, I, you know, I see sometimes the world as, you know, I, I'm very empathetic to people who are not necessarily Americans, right? Because they're the outsiders, so to speak, right. if you're looking at the role of international relations. And so I, I'm very sympathetic toward it because as, as a child growing up in a very segregated South, and I still feel like New Orleans has its divisions, but not as deeply felt as it was in the 70s growing up, um, I always did not feel a part of the environment that I was in. Mm -hmm. Um, whether that was one, because, you know, I didn't grow uptown. I lived in the East. I went to school where most of the people were uptown. I was also African-American that my peers at school, um, were not the ones that I spent my weekends with. Um, and so that had a profound impact on my emotional way of viewing the world. And so I always wanted to have this very sympathetic, I I, I was very sympathetic to people, and I think that really helps me in my role as a diplomat try to see the sides of the negotiations, whether we are focusing on, you know, customs or trade bills or any of those things, I always have a sympathetic eye, and that is because I've all so often been the outsider um, in my life and growing up. 
hearing that that this was your experience in in New Orleans growing up and at the school we both went to has been eye-opening for me and ear-opening. I also spoke to another classmate of ours, the other African-American female in our class, uh-huh. who, who shared a similar experience about how at school she had her friends at school and then on the weekends hung out with a yeah. completely different group of friends, which to me was like, what? Like how, you know, just... Um, different that was and and the friendship groups didn't necessarily blend with each other and I just think that would be hard given at the age that we were where social development and friendship making is the developmental task and how you were able to take your experience and actually become more open to humanity and curious and diplomatic as opposed to closed down and angry and and such is Mm. is remarkable to me and I wonder if that was hard for you yes it was. I think as a child, um, you there is something, you can't define it, right? You say, like, this is odd for me because during the school days, I, you know, I am, I am with these people. I am going to school with them. I am spending time with them at recess and after school, you know, whether it's soccer, volleyball, whatever it was. I happen to do track, but. I was terrible at it. But that being said, <laughs> you know, so you spend time with your classmates. But what's interesting about it is that they spent time with each other on the weekends and their oh. parents hung out with each other. And so you'd get back to school on a Monday and these people had spent their weekends with each other. And I always thought that was weird because that it wasn't my experience. So you automatically start to understand you're not part of a group. And I chose to, I mean, I, it, it's interesting. I would say at the time, I was never particularly, you know, depressed or upset about it. It wasn't until later that I, and when I say later, I'm talking about in my 20s and 30s, because I don't think this experience, you said you spoke to someone else, this experience is not unique to African American. Americans in general. It is not, I'm sorry, it's not unique to me. It is, it is something that it is, I think most African Americans will tell you they do. They go in and out of two kind of worlds. Yes. And I was unaware of that until I went to Howard University. And part of my desire to go to an HBCU, frankly, is because while I couldn't articulate there was something wrong between the fact that I was going between these worlds as a kid and I felt like I didn't belong was I went to, I wanted to go to a school where I would always belong. Like if I went to school with these people, I would also be invited to hang out with them. And there wasn't a a division because yeah, exactly. Because it, it made the, the interesting thing is I couldn't figure out what it was, but certainly by the time I got to eighth grade, and this is a story I've shared with people, and people who aren't from here don't believe it, but um, so many of my friends with Sacred Heart can certainly vouch for it. You know, when yes. I was in eighth grade, they had these private dance clubs, and it was, you know, I found out about one of the dances, and I was like, oh, they forgot me. They didn't invite me, but obviously I go to Sacred Heart, so I'll just show up to the dance. Mm-hmm. And um, my very sweet date, who I love to this day, went to Jesuit. He and I both, for other reasons, he's an outsider too. Um, we show up, and um, one of the mothers said to me, 
you're not, you're, you are not allowed here. And I was confused because obviously I went to Sacred Heart and he went to Jesuit. And so those are the proper schools for this right. private dance club. And um, it wasn't so much my enrollment in school, but it was the color of my skin. And she was quite clear with me that, you know, African-Americans were not part of eight o'clock. And it was jarring for me because it was the first time someone said to me directly, this is why you're not part of us. Wow. And so that was heartbreaking for me. And it also really changed the way in which I interacted with people because all of a sudden I started to question things about me and around me. Um, In retrospect, I think that was an excellent way to kind of be introspective and figure out what's important because that was so hard. And then, of course, going to Howard. Well, I will say that after that, I kind of, I left, came back. um, And then that, you know, made further divisions. I laugh about it because, you know, Sacred Heart has a very specific, you know, if you graduated, you know, and you stay 13 years, you're a special graduate. But, you know, because I left because of that moment and came back, I even was more ostracized because now I didn't get my, you know, reward (laughs) for having been there since kindergarten. So it's just weird things like that that stick out for you that are impactful, but actually have made me a more resilient person and a more empathetic person when I am working with, in particular in my field, when I am working with, you know, other groups and negotiating things because I, I can see things from lots of different perspectives because I've spent so much time observing as a child. You know, I think you just, you took your experiences, which would have been so painful and jarring. And, and I can't imagine how that moment felt to have that parent tell you that. And yet you went on to do things like in Madagascar, work with outsiders. You worked, you hosted a radio talk show on safe sex practices for women in Madagascar, teaching them terms of sexual encounters and condom use since Madagascar has a large sex tourism, uh, industry and and like you really took what happened to you and used it to be of service and help underserved populations and to educate them which I think is so beautiful and that's just one example of what you did in Madagascar well the nice thing and I will use that particular example and as a way in which I view the world and a lot of the young women who were in sex tourism were, you know, from the market women and the more respectable women um, frowned upon. But I understood in having conversations with these women why they were doing what they were doing and what they were trying to do for themselves and their families. And so instead of taking a, a, a judgment perspective, instead I got to know their stories. And I think that's particularly important when you're sitting across the table from someone, you know, we have our fancy diplomatic word interlocutor. Um, When we're talking to people who, and we're trying to accomplish something, it's important to know what I am trying to accomplish by representing, 
you know, the American government, but it's also important to understand the perspective of where another government or another group of people are coming from. Um, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a, I'm a yoga practitioner. I did read um, that. Okay. Okay. (laughs) And so I'm thinking, and there was a, I, right after my time in Haiti, after the earthquake, because it obviously was a very emotional period of time for me and the poverty there is striking, but it's a place that I absolutely love. I went to Kripalu and I spent a month there. And um, so you, you have all of this time to reflect and kind of rejuvenate. And I remember walking in the hallway. It was quiet. I mean, I was there by myself, so most of it was quiet time. But there was this um, quote on the wall. And I have it now almost everywhere I go. And I, more or less, it is, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. And that for me is, you know, when I look at me, I have my own hard battle, but I know as well everyone around me is dealing with something. And I think when you take that particular view of the world and with people, no matter who they are and what they are, it is just so helpful in being a better diplomat in in a better person frankly so um has a lot to do with just like the way in which i view the world and how i've come out of my childhood and why i'm not particularly you know angry at any one person because right. everyone has their own thing and not to minimize you know race relations and you know and i but every child at sacred heart also had whatever they were dealing with. I think that's, I'm still, it, it's hard for me to um, <laughs> just kind of accept, like I went to a school that, that treated you like that. My experience was different going to Sacred Heart mm-hmm. for just my last two years mm-hmm. of high school. I think mm-hmm. for me, my need was to fit in with my parents mm-hmm. having gone through a really um, tr- like, messy divorce and I think Mm -hmm. I just wanted to blend in and fit in and I'm half Pakistani and that didn't seem to be an issue that that I was called out to look different because I'm I'm brown I'm Mm -hmm. you know not black and so I think I was able to just really pass and fit in easily and so just I really appreciate you sharing this Callie on the show today because um wow just to tell a young girl who's going to be a woman that we don't have black children at this school and you cannot attend this event that you are a part of is just Mm -hmm. wow. And then for you to move on and not have that anger and instead empower other women and children who are different to really be themselves and find their voice and not harbor resentment. I think it's beautiful. Well, thank you. But again, you have to use all your life experience. This is with anyone or anything. You use your life experience to make um, to make a better life, and for you and for the other people around you. I do it even through my work as the diplomat in residence. When I go to schools and I talk to students, I mean, this is the one thing that, for whatever reason, I was. I, I my own personal experience is that it's hard to recruit people from the South because they have um, a view of the Department of State that is not necessarily accurate. It's even more challenging to recruit, 
you know, people of color for a lot of reasons, for family ties, their need to have to contribute financially to families, all of these things. And when I shared this kind of more largely with the State Department, everybody's like, you can't say these things. But I'm like, but they're the truth. And so when you start to look at what's reality and what's true and you use that to for a positive outcome, I think you start to move past an area where you could and also I mean anger anger is a waste of time. Like <laughs> you know right. because the only person who's really stewing is, is you, you. The person yeah. angry. Instead of using yeah. that energy for something to to change, to, to create. Yeah. Like anger, I think yeah. that energy can be used for creation of things that are helpful and needed. And it sounds like your yoga practice has been an yeah. integral part in helping mm-hmm. you work through things and propel yourself forward in your life. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think I also, I look at it, it this is a very simple example. When I'm really upset, I go for a run and I have some of the best runs of my life. And so you just have to kind of use that negative energy to create something positive and people who's you know it it will all and maybe I'm wrong we'll find out when I'm 97 but I think that when you use all of that energy in a positive way you'll end up on top and I can't I I hope that even through sharing this with you because you're you know one person that you see my experience and you reflect back and you're like oh I didn't realize that. And there might be other people listening who are like, wow, didn't even know that was happening. I'm sure. Um, And can use that as a way to look at what we're doing currently, either in the work field or, you you know, with their their own kids um, and what we do outside of that space. I mean, it's just so ironic because I just, I constantly am thinking about you know, the way race relations are viewed today and how we are still struggling with um, race relations when it comes even to simple things as protesting um, police brutality. So mm-hmm. um, it, 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 that's why I think it's useful, frankly, to have that dialogue so people can I think go, so too. oh, I wasn't and- even aware of that. And they can talk about it amongst their colleagues, their friends, educate their children. And that's how things Mm -hmm. change. That's how belief systems change. Do you mind if we take a moment for me to do my sponsor pitch? And I'll be right back to you, Callie. Thank you. Thank you. This show today is brought to you by Audible. They have over 180,000 book titles available for you to choose from. And as my sponsor, they're offering you a free month subscription and audiobook download of your choice. If you like politics and topics around politics, a book that I found that looked interesting on Audible is called The Restless Wave, and it's narrated by both of its authors, John McCain and Bo Bridges. You can take advantage of this offer by going to their website, which is audibletrial.com forward slash all things therapy. So, Kelly, I'm curious, since you've, your time is in New Orleans is concluding, have you had an opportunity to go back to Sacred Heart and speak to the students? I think you'd just be a powerful speaker being a diplomat coming from Sacred Heart. Like, is that something that you have done or would be interested so- in doing? Interestingly enough, um, I was here at Tulane, and the uh, 
university hosted a, a couple of high schools for I don't want to call it quiz bowl. It was something similar to that. And I was a judge and the Sacred Heart team was there and they won. And um, I met the professors and it was the teachers there. And I was asked to come back to speak to the students. So I did just a few weeks ago. Um, And it was actually the one thing that I noticed, and this was not why I was there. I was impressed that there were a few more uh, instead of the ratio of like two to sixty, they had um, a little more diversity. But I don't. So that was one of the things that I just noticed while I was speaking. That wasn't. I was there mostly to talk about opportunities because, again, as a young girl, I had never heard of the Foreign Service until I was in my twenties, and I wanted to give young women at Sacred Heart the opportunity to know more about diplomacy because I find that the earlier I talk about it with students here in New Orleans, the more likely they are to have, you know, think, consider taking the right coursework. But I, I, I wish I haven't, but I think my, my, my conversation at Sacred Heart would probably be a little different if they asked me to do a speech. I would talk sure. about being sympathetic and turning around to the person next to you and understanding who they are. But I think it's not just, I don't want to make this, I think it's high school, right? Because I look Mm -hmm. at the current environment of high schools and the shootings and the rejections and why these, you know, young kids do these things, not to excuse them, but it's the not feeling a part of something that is so deep in our society, and it's really important for students and high schools to really start to work with people, to educate people on being emotionally present, you know, having that in- emotional intelligence that, you know, bring it back to the 90s. I mean, I really think that's critical, and for me, I have always viewed myself as a person who has a high emotional intelligence, and I try to keep it that way, but yes. I certainly wouldn't have gained it if I hadn't have been the outsider, I don't think. I mean, it's hard right. for a popular kid to <laughs> to think about other people. I mean, it just is, and that's no matter where you go. But I haven't been back to Sacred Heart in a real impactful way, but certainly I think we should all, I mean, other than, you know, the annual giving, (laughs) but I think I would love to kind of talk to girls about being resilient and being considerate to others. And I think, like you said, to share with them at a young age where they can start making those decisions if they do want Mm -hmm. to become an American diplomat. I didn't know that was an option. You're the only diplomat I've I know that I'm able to speak to, and I I know in knowing some about your story, that when you decided to take the foreign officer exam, it's an extensive eight-step process, and out of the 20,000 people (laughs) that applied, they only offered a position to 456, so uh, it's it's really amazing, and do you want to talk some about that for someone listening that might be curious, how do I become, how do I do sure, what you do? At least I'm really impressed by your stats because those are dead on in the, in the year that thank I you. joined. Um, I love researching, so thank you. Okay, yes. Um, so now I will say the numbers are a bit lower, but the, the process is, um, as you said, the eight-step process. And the first part of that is 
determining what role you want to play as a foreign service generalist. And I mean, this, there's a difference between a generalist and a specialist, and this is particularly important and I want people to know because the foreign service doesn't hire just people who think about policy. We hire everyone. So I want to talk about being a foreign service specialist first because okay. we are always looking for information technology specialists, facility managers, nurses, and doctors, and people with technical skills. And as long as you have those technical skills, you can apply directly to join the Foreign Service and you can combine, for example, architects, forgot those, we hire architects to build our embassies abroad. You can apply and combine your love of travel with you know, the career you may have. So being a doctor and having a small little practice in an embassy, so to speak, is like working, you know. So that's one thing. So that's a specialist. But what I am is a generalist. And there are five kinds of generalists. And as I mentioned, I'm an economic uh, focused officer, but we also have officers that focus on consular work, specifically working with visas and American, American citizens, political officers, and management officers who do the operational side, and then public diplomacy, that cultural exchange that I was talking about earlier, mm -hmm. as well as our spokesperson. So you first have to decide which one of those five focus tracks that you'd like to do. Once you do that, you can sign up for the Foreign Service Officer Exam, which is offered throughout the United States, and it's also offered if you happen to be living internationally there. And you sign up for the exam. It is offered three times a year. It is free to you. It's, it's a Pearson View Centers, and the exam really covers – there's a substance of knowledge part, and it covers a range of issues, but it's really important for you to understand American political systems, uh, world cultures, international affairs, our different relationships with different countries, statistics, constitutional law. So it really is – I would say, a general SAT component to it. There is also um, a written essay part. So it's, 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 it's a challenging SAT. Mm -hmm. um, and there's also, if you're really interested, I mean, on our website, careers.state.gov, there is the Foreign Service Officer Practice Exam. You take the exam. Oh, cool. You, you pass that exam, I like to say, and then you, have the, you write um, personal narratives about yourself because until this point, we have not had the opportunity to focus on the candidate as a person. So you get to write about yourself, and this is particularly important because this is the part where you get to share the best parts of yourself and what makes you a good candidate. So we focus on leadership, uh, traits and your interpersonal skills, and uh, candidates who are selected from that process are invited to Washington for what we call an oral assessment or an interview. And after that interview, those that pass this part uh, will have a security clearance. So that's the okay. whole process, and it takes about a year. And as you mentioned before, it can be competitive. Um, this year, um, you know, the numbers change every year. The time that I was hired, there were 400, approximately 450 people that were hired in my year. <coughs> Excuse me. And this year, mm -hmm. I think we're looking, you know, I, it, it, it changes. So it just depends. Sure. But I always encourage people to take it. Take it. Take the exam. It's free. You, you don't know. And if you're thinking about it, 
it doesn't matter. And that's why the diplomats and residents are there. We're 16 across the United States. So there's someone in the region. You don't have to be a student. You know, I'm here at Tulane, but I don't, you don't have to be a Tulane student. I am across um, Arkansas, Mississippi, and Louisiana. And if you, again, look at our website, the diplomat in residence for your region is there, and he, she is there as a resource to kind of help you find out what best suited for you and um, even if the specialties are looking for those and then you get to go off and enjoy the world and choosing where you live is quite an interesting process as well so I can talk about that if you're interested but that's the process of becoming a diplomat Mm -hmm. yeah I remember your story where you had you were hoping to be in a French speaking country and you ended up in uh, Vietnam (laughs) (laughs) yes not quite a french-speaking country vietnam so the great thing is no matter where you're going they teach you the language and so i spent a little under a year learning uh the vietnamese language but when you first join you are part of a group called the a100 class and they give you a list that you rank let's say there were 40 people in your class mine happened to have a, a little over 80 they also they'll give you 40 countries 40 different roles and you rank those and based on the needs of the service and your worldwide availability um, you will put those there a panel will meet and kind of decide who fits best where kind of like a Sudoku of you know all the different officers and needs and talent and at the time even though I had some French my I the greatest need for the service at the time and I'm so pleased they did this was Vietnam because I'd never even considered Asia and right. it was an eye-opening experience for me and I went into it with the idea of I don't know this place I was a little disappointed but it, it it changed the way that I view what I do because now I'm so open to going almost anywhere I mean so, so, and that's really what it's about. You have to be ready for any kind of adventure. Mm-hmm. So, will you speak to us in our our concluding part of the show about your next post in Botswana as Deputy Chief oh, of Mission? Yes, what I'm is that? Very excited about it. Okay, so. Uh, this will, so believe it or not, when I first started, like I said, I wanted to go to French-speaking Africa. So it's nice that towards now 17 years in, I will, um, well, 17 years of federal service, I'll get the opportunity to go to Botswana, where I will be the deputy chief of mission. Our embassies in our lingo are mission, so... And every embassy is led by an ambassador, and he or she has a deputy. Our ambassador is the chief of mission, so I will serve as the embassy's deputy and to the ambassador's deputy. And a lot of what I will do, we are about 300 strong uh, members there, both um, local hires and Americans. And my job is from day to day making sure that the operation runs. So I'm I'm really excited about it because it's a huge leadership challenge. I get mm-hmm. to, you know, travel to Africa. And the nice thing of, about, but I'm just getting to know um, the the mission there. So I admit, um, but the, the, some of the interesting things there, especially having the health background, is that there's a large PEPFAR program there. So there, that's a large the, one, Kelly. Uh, I'm sorry, and I was gonna. I said PEPFAR, and then I was gonna explain it. But the presidential program uh, for to I guess 
against AIDS, so the presidential wow. program for um, HIV. And that was started in the Bush era to combat the AIDS ep- epidemic in Africa. So that is one of the programs. We also have a, a regional um, security program there. So there are a lot of wonderful things that are happening in Botswana that I get to be a part of and ensure that we are, um, you know, having a productive relationship um, with the country as well as, and I'll be able to get to know a little bit more about Southern Africa in particular, which I'm excited about. So my job really as the Deputy Chief of Mission, kind of the second person in charge, if you will, is to ensure that young officers coming in get the kind of experience and exposure they need to be better officers, that the U.S. government um, maintains a productive relationship with uh, the government of Botswana, and that I focus on some of the regional activities that we're doing. So that's really my my next step and next role. And it really is humbling and an honor that I that I've been given this you know large job going forward. I think it's so exciting. It is. Congratulations. <laughs> so I, Thank you, Lisa. I'm really excited about it. Um, and it's just been a whirlwind for me um, because I got married a week ago. You just got married a week ago. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Six days ago. And it hasn't wow. even been a week. And we, he and I are off to a new adventure. Um, and it'll be exciting. Everything will be new to me. And I'll finally have the opportunity to return to Africa, having left, um, you know, Peace Corps, that being the last time that I was there. I was thinking before we came live on the show and we had a brief Mm -hmm. conversation, or I just wondered about you even finding a partner and it must be a special man that you can live abroad (laughs) and just see eye to eye on these things. Can, can you speak to us? And we, we have a few more minutes. So, you know, just what that experience was like for you being what you do for a living is so unique. It's interesting. I would say when, especially when young women ask me about dating in the foreign service, I'm one of the few that say, Hey, it's been fun. I am unique <laughs> to that. Most people will say it's challenging, right? Because, and I will say this, this is true about friendships and family because you get to a place, you spend two or three years in a place, and then you absolutely pack up everything you own in life and you move. Um, and so and it's rare that you'll go back to a country. And so you're asking somebody to, who also has a career and a life to do the same thing, but they're not being professionally rewarded in the same way that you are. And I think that is why, believe it or not, I've, I've known my now husband for um, almost 19 years. And I wow. think it takes, marriage takes work. So let me say that. Mm-hmm. I go, But marriage, when you are, you know, Country hopping takes um, particular work and a lot of communication, and I found the person who is willing to do it um, and is willing to understand my quirks, and a lot of our life experiences are the same, and Mm -hmm. so he is able to support me in that way and promote my success because it's really important to him. Um, But I... 
it it was a journey for us because, like I said, we've known each other for years, and I've gone in and out of the United States and in and out of his life. And he just decided, like, when I was like, I'm leaving again, he was like, well, you're not leaving without me. (laughs) I think um, that is what it, it, it just takes some work to figure out and for them to really appreciate and understand the challenges of the Foreign Service, which means you won't be near family, you won't be near friends, but you'll have each other for that adventure. And that just takes a unique person. That's beautiful, Callie. I'm really happy for both of you. Thank you, Lisa. And then your mom as well. I, I imagine she support is, how is this for her, being that she's in New Orleans and she's seen you live all over the world? So the, it's been fun. But like my mom, when I, it's funny, when after I finished law school, um, you know, I was like, I'm joining the Peace Corps. Um, my mom was like, that's awesome because she always had a wanderlust about her but she also was the person in the family who really taught me about public service as long as I have grown up my mom traveled to Haiti to work in medical clinics like you mentioned before both of our parents are physicians Um, she worked at you know, Covenant House, she always demonstrated to me the importance of giving back. So for her, joining the Peace Corps was the ultimate give back. And so my mom has come to visit me in every country I've ever been. And she really enjoys the fact that not only is it, it, it's really about public service, and given the humble background that my mom came up in and the fact that she is always, always, always giving back to community, she under I mean, that's the child she raised is the person who was going to find the focus of public service. So for her, she has always... Um, Again, it's even proud of me, but it's true, yeah. and very humbled by my by my career choice. That's that's so wonderful, Callie. I'm so honored to know you, and so happy to be back connected I know, in I'm each other's excited. lives. <laughs> thank you so much for being my guest today, Lisa. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it and had fun talking to you. You're welcome. Me too. I look forward to seeing you before you move to Botswana. Absolutely. Have a really good day, Callie, and thank you. You got it. Bye. Yes, bye. That concludes our show for today with Callie Jones, Foreign Service Officer and U.S. Diplomat. Join me next week as I bring you another guest, and thank you so much for listening each week. Bye-bye. Listening to All Things Therapy with Lisa Tahir only.